0: Welcome to the Staying Connected podcast, the preaching ministry of Rosemont Baptist Church in Montrose, Colorado. I'm Pastor Roland Kennison, and I want to thank you for listening. Rosemont Baptist Mission is passionately bringing people face-to-face with the life-changing power of Jesus Christ. It's our prayer that through this podcast, you'll hear our passion for the gospel and that you will truly experience the transformation that only Jesus can bring. I pray you find the following sermon encouraging and challenging and that it will build you up in the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. And one more thing before we begin. If any of the sermons on our podcast have been helpful to you, would you please let us know? It would be a great help and blessing to us to know that this ministry is being used by God in your life and ministry. Would you tell us where you're located and specifically how this ministry has helped you? We greatly anticipate hearing from you. You can simply email your response to pastor at rosemontbaptist.org. Now, let's begin our time today. So let's turn in your Bible, or if it's on your phone, you can turn there. It'll be up on the screen, but uh, let's read along together. Uh, Galatians 2, starting in verse 11. And uh, here is what... The word of God says this morning. Galatians 2:11 But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, in the presence of all, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews. We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. But if, while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have, been, have also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Let's pray this morning. God, I am so thankful for the simple message of the gospel, that it is through Christ that we are saved. It is not our works It is not the things we do. It is not a strict set of rules of do's and don'ts, but it is a simple surrendering to Jesus Christ and trusting in his blood to cover our sins. And so, God, I pray this morning that you would teach us the importance of making sure our ministries... Stay faithful to that message. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, we have a lot of different ways that we protect the things that we we own or the things that, that we find valuable. We insure our houses. We insure our cars we buy extended warranties on our big appliances and, and electronics we insure family members so that we make sure that if something happens that they're going to be okay we're going to be okay you know a very nervous airline passenger began pacing in the terminal because bad weather had delayed his flight and while he was walking around, he saw a vending machine that would sell $100,000 of life insurance for $3. And he says, well, that is too good of a deal to not, to not take advantage of. So he paid $3 and received the $100,000 policy. And he looked around outside and thought, this is a, this is a, good, a good purchase. And so he felt better about the the. The bad weather outside and started walking through the airport. He got a little hungry, so he went to a restaurant to eat one of those in the food court, and he found a Chinese restaurant. He went in there, and he had a nice relaxing meal, knowing that his family's taken care of. He opened up his fortune cookie at the end, and it said, your recent investment will pay big dividends. And so he wasn't so relaxed after that. Anyway, our, our, our passage today isn't about insurance, but it is about protection. You know, Paul begins the, the book of Galatians by defending his apostleship. And he begins to, by, by, by defending the concept that we are declared innocent, not by the things we do, but through faith in Christ Jesus. We call that justification by faith. And his, it and and here he is concluding a section of the letter that is his defense. And he shows us through some principles and some examples that we need to protect our ministries. We are all called to individual ministries. As a church, we are called to ministries. And it's our, our job to make sure we protect those ministries from any false doctrine that might try to come in and, and infect that ministry and, in, and, and infect the real gospel. And so we're going to spend our time today talking about an incident that happened between Peter and Paul. These two solid leaders, strong men of the faith coming head to head in a particular instance. And so with this instance, we can watch Paul's activity and learn how we can protect ourselves and our ministries from false doctrine. And so first is just simply that we must not mix error with the truth. That's our first principle. We must not mix error with the truth. We see in verses 11 through 14 that Paul begins this, this conversation with Peter in this incident that happened and and paul has already told us with, so far in the in this gospel or in, in this uh, epistle that that he has not received his authority from men he has not gone to jerusalem and got the approval of of james or peter or john that jesus christ gave him the authority to preach the message he's preaching to the to the gentiles and because of that, he would not allow any man to come in and teach something that wasn't in line with what Scripture had to say. He even said earlier that if he came in, or if one of the apostles came in, or an angel came in and preached a gospel different to what God has revealed, that they are to be, the word was, anathema, accursed, sent and, and damned to hell that is the word that he has used earlier and so now peter the rock right that's his name it's cephas is what he's called but but his nickname was was rock he's peter the son of John so he's Rocky Johnson. I mean this is this is he lives he's a big guy. Right? He is coming in and he's got a powerful we know Peter. He's always saying what he shouldn't say. He's always got an opinion. He is the leader of the apostles and he walks into to this church in Antioch and this incident occurs. And so let's first look at Peter's error. It says in verse 12 Well, in 11, he says, Cephas came to Antioch and I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. And then verse 12, for prior to coming, to the coming of certain men from James, he, that is Peter, Cephas, used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. So, When he first arrived at Antioch, Antioch was a Gentile place. They were eating Gentile food. I don't know if it was bacon or lobsters or or ham or whatever it was, but they were enjoying it. And Peter came and, and sat down with Paul and the Gentiles, and they would have a great time together and enjoy being believers in Christ. They had true fellowship, a partnership. And, and he was enjoying that relationship. In fact, Peter knew it was okay to do this as a Jewish man. In Acts chapter 10, we have the story of when Cornelius, this Roman centurion, comes to faith. And Peter has this vision where this sheet of unclean food comes down and and has this vision of all this good meat that Jewish people weren't allowed to eat and, and all these food that that smelled great but but he was never allowed to touch as a Jewish man and and he heard a voice that said Peter eat and he says oh lord i can't i am you know i'm a Jewish man i can't eat these unclean things and the voice said don't call unclean what I have cleansed. And this happened three times. And it wasn't about food. It was about Cornelius, this unclean Gentile who wanted to come to Christ. And God told Peter, do not call these Gentiles unclean because I am working among them and I'm bringing them to Christ. And so, So Peter goes to Cornelius and him and his family all turn to Christ, give their lives over and are baptized and are changed and will meet them in eternity. And so Peter knows it's okay to go to Antioch and sit down with the Gentiles and just enjoy being in the presence of the unclean people. As a Jewish man, he could do that because of the Holy Spirit that had entered into these people in the church and had cleansed them because they had trusted in Christ. And so when he first arrived, this is what Peter did. He accepted these Gentiles as brothers and sisters, and he was breaking bread with them. And the tense here is to indicate it was a continual action. It was the habit of Peter to come in and enjoy this. But then there was the error. He behaved one way with the Gentiles, but 12 says he came in another way. And this was Peter's error. Some Jewish leaders came from Jerusalem. That's what it means when it says they came from James. It were they were believers, but they were they were from Jerusalem. They were they were Jewish people. I don't know what I just said, but they were Jewish men from, from Jerusalem that came from James. And so these were Jewish men who their whole life would avoid certain foods. And they were taught that you could not be in close contact with these kind of people because they're just not the right kind of people. They they are unclean. And these people with their holy attitude had walked into this church in Antioch to see what was going on. And it says Peter feared them. He feared them. He stepped back from his relationship with the Gentiles. And and the sense of the text could be that he not only stopped eating dinner with them, but there are some who think that it suggests that he stopped taking the Lord's Supper with them. How could a Jewish man enjoy communion with all these Gentiles? He had fellowship with the Gentiles when the Jews were not there and they showed up and he broke fellowship with them because it looked bad. Because they were different than him. And he did it because he feared them. He feared what they would think of him and he feared that he might lose his reputation maybe as the leader of the apostles and he feared what they would report back to James. You know, Peter's out there living it up, you know. And what's, you know, going back to James and tattling on him. And so he was afraid. His fear of those in authority caused him to compromise the truth in his actions. By acting a certain way, he was teaching a principle to this church. See, we live our theology, we live what we believe. When we act, People know what we believe. We show people what we believe by what we do. When Peter withdrew from these Gentiles, he taught them they were less in the kingdom of God because of their genealogy. And he taught them by stepping away and breaking fellowship that in order to be a Christian, to be a a real Christian, you have to be like these Jewish guys. You have to follow the law. You have to do the set of do's and don'ts, and you have to go through the law in order to have a relationship with Christ. You follow the law, then you become a believer. And that is Peter's error. He was thinking that his actions have no consequences, but his actions. We're bringing false teaching into the church. And the Jewish people, we're gonna see the impact here. The Jewish people begin to act one way and the Gentiles act another. And so let's look at the impact of the error in verse 13. Peter's error was that he was teaching a false gospel by how he lived. He might say, I believe that all people are saved by grace. But when it comes down to it, he was living that, no, what you're saved by is what you do. And so what's the impact? Verse 13, the rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. The church began to split. And all of a sudden all the Jewish people were standing over here and all the Gentiles were standing over here and maybe they, maybe they had different times of eating or when they had their time of fellowship together, which really wasn't fellowship now because the church was split. All the Gentiles were eating over here and, and kind of wondering what they're talking about over here at the Jewish table and, and they just had no more of the fellowship that comes from the, the relationship we have with Christ that binds us together. And the pressure was so intense and the division became so clear that Barnabas, whose name literally means son of encouragement, he was the one who saw the murderous Paul and said, I think he's truly changed. Let's introduce him to the the rest of the apostles. Even he says, I really can't have fellowship with these Gentiles. I mean, after all, Peter left and then all these Jewish people. I don't want to be the only Jewish person over here with the Gentiles because then they're going to think badly of me and whatever it is. Now, I get that in today's world, race seems to be a big issue, but there is nothing new under the sun. The racial tones here are incredible. It would just be as powerful an image to say I would sit down and be friends with a group of, let's say, Hispanic friends until some white people came in, and then I go over here and say I don't want anything to do with them. That I acted like they were not real brothers and sisters in Christ. Look, the church is in, was enjoying this diverse fellowship that's found in Christ and Christ alone. That's where unity comes from. And they were enjoying that. And one action, one action, one that taught one false kind of teaching, just a little bit, it split a church simply because someone was afraid of what someone else might think. Peter's action began a chain reaction that led the rest of the Jews to follow him. A church split happened. But look at Paul's correction. Look in verse 14. Verse 14, it says this, But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, If you, being a Jew, live like Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? Paul sees this and he says, no, this isn't happening here. He says, we are not going to have this division at the church in Antioch. You remember it says in the church of Antioch they were first called Christians, little Christs. The people saw the church of Antioch and they said, these are like little bitty Christs running around. They look like Jesus a lot. And Paul says, we are not stopping that reputation because, because of, of this false split, of, of false doctrine that brought this split. It's worth noting that in verse 11, that we saw Paul corrected Peter directly to his face. And again, wouldn't you want to be a fly on the wall right there, right? Wouldn't you love to hear Peter and Paul, I mean, Paul thundering against Peter and Peter trying to defend himself and saying the wrong thing at the wrong time. And I just think that would have been fascinating. But he says it's right to his face, and in verse 14 it says he did this in the presence of all. See, when there is an offense, it's proper to address everybody who's been impacted by that offense. You know, if you hurt somebody individually, then you go to that person and you make some reconciliation one-on-one. It would not be appropriate if you hurt somebody individually to get up in a crowd and then make some sort of apology because the other people were not involved in that. But this error involved everybody. This teaching impacted the entire church. The Gentiles and the Jewish people, they all were impacted by this. And and Paul says, this is not going to happen here. This has to be corrected. And the bottom line that he said was, Peter is not straightforward with the truth of the gospel. Peter knew. Peter knew that the only condition, it is faith. It's by grace through faith, is what I'm saying. He knew that. He knew it was only Jesus' death on the cross that could save them. And our transferring of trust to that work is what would save people f- from their sins. He knew that. But his actions and his, his behavior, he taught that you had to add circumcision as a requirement to have fellowship with God. And in doing this, he contradicted the gospel. Now, Paul and Peter didn't have this confrontation because they were just two strong personalities and someone's got to be alpha. I mean, that wasn't what happened here. It wasn't that these two guys were trying to be top dog. The gospel itself was at stake The salvation of people's souls was at stake. And Paul said, it is important enough to correct this right now. And so it was Peter who was doing this. And he would have damaged the work of Christ because of his position. And so Paul simply asks him, if Peter was a Jew and he was living like the Gentiles, he was eating their food, he was having fellowship with them, I don't know, singing their songs, whatever happened there in the church in, in Antioch. He says, if you are a Jewish person and you can live like that, then why do the Gentiles have to go live like the Jewish people? He says, it makes no sense. If we're justified by faith alone, That means those who follow Christ do not have to become Jewish. That's what Peter is saying. The issue here is that Peter began to mix error and truth, and it brought havoc into the church body. The thing is, Peter wasn't preaching it, Peter was living it. And people were watching him, and it brought that division into the church. So why do we have to worry about mixing error with truth? You know, doesn't God know our hearts and say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm serving my ministry, and I know this isn't really what the truth is, but, but isn't it good enough that my intentions are, are pure? Well, let me tell you this. Let's say you needed a blood transfusion. The body holds somewhere between 8 and 12 pints of blood, You need an entire transfusion. I I don't know why a person would need that, but let's say you got to do that. You walk into the doctor's office and he says, I got some some good news and some bad news. The good news is I got seven pints of really good blood, right? I mean, it is clean and sterile or whatever. It's good stuff. But the bad news is I've got one pint and it's got just a little bit of HIV in it. Are we going to be okay with saying, ah, just use it all, you know? No, because just that little bit, it taints the whole thing. It makes everything damaged. We see here it was only a little bit that ruined the whole lot. And that's true of our teaching and what we live out as well. I mean, Jesus himself said it's a little bit of leaven that ruins the whole batch or impacts the whole batch. And so this is true of legalism, and it's true of licentiousness. We have a a tight rope to walk. That is to say, we we cannot say that in order to come to Christ— One must do this or that and earn your way into salvation. We cannot approach people who are spiritually blind, spiritually lame, spiritually deaf, and tell them, you have to live like Christ before you come to know Christ. It is impossible for them to do so. So you know what? Lost people curse. They do. I've heard them. Oh, it's also our believer's curse too, but that's another story. And they live wrongly. They live in in opposition to God's created order. And you know what? I think Christians do the same thing. Lost people cannot live like Christ Until they've surrendered their life to Christ, the Holy Spirit comes in and empowers them. So we cannot expect them. People who live their life in slavery to Satan and his way of thinking tell them, to come to the church, you have to think like us and dress like us and talk like us and be like us and vote like us and think, you know, spend your money like us. Because they, they can't. And it's not about becoming like us. That's not what I'm getting at. But for those who know Christ and are trying to live Christ-like, yes, we're uncomfortable with the sin they're in. But the answer isn't do better. The answer is surrender to Christ. That is the... That is... The story here, legalism, is what Peter was bringing into the church. He was saying you must do this if you want to receive Christ. But the other, like I said, we're walking this tightrope, and there's the legalism, but you cannot mix licentiousness with the truth. Licentiousness is the idea that because I'm saved, I have Jesus, I've asked him in my heart, I'm forgiven, and I can live however I want to live now. I know the Bible says I should be doing this thing, like having fellowship with other believers on a regular basis. That's not a suggestion from a pastor. That's a command from Scripture. But I'm going to live this way. That's licentiousness. I mean, after all, I got my get-out-of-jail-free card. I've got my fire insurance. I'm not going to hell. I'll just live however I want to live. I'll behave how I want to behave. I will be loose with my, my lusts of the flesh and lust of the eyes and the pride of life, and I'll do whatever I want to do because, after all, I'm going to heaven because I trust in Jesus. That is as much of a lie and false doctrine as the legalism is. And it brings disaster to a church that says, I'm going to mix that error with the truth. So we must have ministries that diligently walk that fine line where we're not being legalistic, but we're not being licentious. And it's all through the grace of Jesus Christ that we can walk that line. If error gets mixed with the truth, it brings controversy and division into the body of Christ. And so we need to protect ourselves from false teaching. But also, listen, to to protect our ministries, we must not mix error with the truth. And that means we must teach justification by faith alone. That is what Peter says here in verse 15 through 18. He says in 15, we're Jews by nature, not sinners from among the Gentile. And he's using, he's using sarcasm here. He says, we, Paul and Peter, he says, we are the chosen Jewish people, right? We're not sinners like these Gentiles are. He's kind of being sarcastic here. And he's saying, even we who are the chosen and not these sinners, we know the law cannot save. So he begins with an explanation of what the true gospel is. So here's the question. What is justification by faith? That's a lot of church word, even in that little phrase. And so let's look first at the general principle of what it is. And it's the first part of 16. This is it. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law but through faith in Christ Jesus. I think that might be one of the most important passages in all of Scripture right there. Circle it, underline it in your Bible, write it in your notes, whatever it is. Someone says, what is Christianity about? What is it you believe? And it's right here. We believe that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. That's it. That's the gospel. That verse there tells us that. But it has some church words, like I said, that we're justified. We might not quite get our minds around. The word justified, it means declared innocent. If you need to write that in your Bible, do that too. Justified means declared innocent. Think of a courtroom and you have just robbed a bank, right? You have robbed a bank with gunpoint. You walk in, there are cameras everywhere and all of them are on you. And you're not that great of a bank robber. So there's people in the bank that trip you up and they all see you because you forgot your mask and they all can identify you very clearly. And that you accidentally tell them your name somehow and they, they know who you are and you drop your wallet so your ID's there and then you walk out the door and the police are standing there waiting for you and they take you into cuffs and you got the money and the gun. There is no doubt... You are guilty, right? And you're standing before the judge, ready to get your judgment, and the judge says, you're innocent. That is justification. See, there's a difference between innocence and not guilty. Not guilty says in a courtroom that there's not enough evidence to convict you. And so you're not guilty. But justification says there is all kinds of evidence you are guilty. And God says, I am going to call you innocent. Isn't that good? Because there is no doubt that we have broken God's law, that we live in contrary to what he calls us to. We are in rebellion in our natural state and we stand before the creator and if we have trusted Christ and what he has done on the cross, God justifies us. He says, you are innocent. And that is only because Jesus Christ has taken All our guilt and all our sin, all that bank robbery you've done, the reason that judge could say innocent is because Jesus Christ says, I will take that punishment for him. I'll be the guilty party. And so when he was nailed to a cross, our sins were nailed there with him. And if we simply would trust in that work instead of us trying to be better, we would have eternal life. And God would say, when he looks at us, you're innocent of all charges. So a good way to remember the word justified is, just if I'd never sinned. When God justifies us, he sees us just as if We have never sinned. It is taking the whiteboard of our life and wiping it clean, never to be written on again. All our sins, past, present, and future sins were forgiven. And God looks at our sin board and he says there's nothing written on it because we have trusted in Jesus. Paul says that a person is justified not by the works of the law, Now, when he says works of the law, he is speaking about obedience to to the works of the law, talking about the law that Moses has received and and being obedient to that in hopes to secure a relationship with God. And guys, there are people doing this all over, and you might be sitting here being one of those, that says, I must go to church more if I want God to love me. I, I know we're commanded to go to church once we come to know Christ. But I'm talking about our initial relationship. If I want to come to Christ, there are those who say, I have to say this prayer a certain amount of times. I have to go and to do these rituals. I have to give to the poor more. I have to do more. I have to be more. And we can't do it. That is the works of the law. It's someone saying... and it's it's the idea of someone saying someone who thinks they can be justified by the works of the law they say stuff like this i've never broken the 10 commandments so i'm pretty sure i'll go to heaven and folks i hear that all the time and you might hear that all the time when you talk to friends and family And you know what? When someone says, I have not broken the Ten Commandments, so I think I'll be able to go to heaven, there is nothing in that sentence that's true. (laughs) You get what I'm saying? Because we have broken the Ten Commandments. And following the Ten Commandments does not get us in right relationship with God. And Jesus came so that we can know that we have eternal life, not think that we do and hope that we do. And so all these things, the works of the law, it refers to anything that we do in the attempt to try to get God to like us more. Because we know, okay, I know I'm a pretty rotten person. I'm assuming you may know that about you, but I know I'm a rotten person. And my natural tendency, specifically without Christ, is that God would not accept me. But maybe if I gave more money to the guy standing on the street corner or maybe if I gave more time at the homeless shelter or maybe if I read my Bible you know, an hour or two a day or maybe if I prayed the right exact prayer or maybe if I prayed more times or maybe if I went to church more often and maybe if I did this and if I did this and if I was more, then maybe God would accept me. And that is a life of slavery and it's not what God intended for us and we have religions based in that that people are enslaved by that false teaching paul says here and read the words knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law no one is justified by the works of the law, you know. Even he says, "It's not by the works of the law that man, someone that, that someone is saved. No one's justified, but through faith in Christ Jesus." Even in the church, sometimes we forget what faith means. Faith is not. Agreeing intellectually with everything that I've said or what the Scripture has to say. It's not saying, yes, I believe that the Bible says that. I believe there is a God. I believe in Jesus Christ. You might even believe Jesus Christ came and died for sin. And intellectually, you can tick off all those boxes. That is not salvation. James 2.19 says this. You believe that God is one? You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. You know, Satan's statement of faith, so to speak, is right on. That is to say, he believes in the Trinity, he believes Jesus was born of a virgin. And he believed Jesus came and led a a sinless life and died on the cross and then was in the ground for three days and rose up from the dead so that anyone who believes in him would have eternal life. Satan believes all of that, but that doesn't mean he's going to be saved. And you can believe all of that. I mean, you can mentally and intellectually assent to all that was said. And that does not equate to salvation because it's not about knowledge. Faith is relying, it's it's giving up on relying on my works and what I do to try to earn my salvation. And I completely trust in what God has done on the cross, what Jesus did on the cross to pay the penalty for my sin. It is saying I'm a sinner and I cannot be good enough. And so all I can do is look to the cross and what Jesus did there. That's the gospel in a nutshell. God tells us we're innocent when we stop trying to do good to get into heaven and trust entirely on Jesus to get to heaven. That's the gospel. So Paul clarifies this here principle. He has this basic principle that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And then he says, and the six, last part, of, I mean, the middle of 16, he says, even we have believed in Christ so that we may be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law. Paul is simply just saying, Peter, you know, we both know this is the case because we both experienced it. We know that we have been justified by faith and not by our works. So he is just simply saying, Peter, you and I know this, so why are you living that way? And so Paul wants to make sure everyone understands this idea of justification by faith. And he gives this absolute principle in the last part of 16. He says this. Since by the works of the law, look what it says, no flesh will be justified. All of humanity, no exceptions, they'll be just they they cannot be justified by the works of the law by doing more by being better and we must sure we must be sure we get this there are not some who are saved because they're religiously devoted there's not a group of people that'll get to heaven who really didn't believe in Jesus but they were really committed to ritual that's not going to happen There are not those that are getting to heaven because they're really, really good people, but they have never trusted in Christ. There's not a compartment in heaven for those folks. It says here, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. There is one way into eternity, and it is through Jesus Christ. He said... I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is one way. And the truth is, uh, that, that is the truth, and we need to take a stand. We, we must take a stand on that. Listen, if we have a friend, and we love that friend dearly, And that friend does a lot of good work in the community. And they're always friendly. They never have a sharp, you know, a harsh word. And that person helps whenever they can. And they are just the sweetest person, but they have never trusted in Christ. They are not justified. And that should break our hearts. And it should compel us to share, to say, you are, all, you, you are a great person, but in God's eyes, you fall short. And I fall short. And we all fall short. And that's why we must depend only in Christ and His work. Maybe you right now, you say, if I said, if you were to stand before God and he says, why should I let you into my heaven? I want you to think through that. If you stood before God right now, you had passed away. We don't want you to. And don't worry, that's not going you know, we're not, not going to do anything. But if you, if you were to die and you stood before the Almighty Father right now and he says, why should I let you into my eternity? what would your answer be? And if your answer has a lot of I in it, well, I, I was on church on Sunday. I know your Bible. I was baptized when I was a kid. I said a certain amount of prayers a certain amount of times. I gave to the poor. If your answer has a lot of you in it, It doesn't work. He'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. You You're trusting in the works of the law. And it says here that no flesh will be justified by the works of the law. But a person in that state right now, while you're still living, if a person would say, "I, I finally understand. I can't earn my way. I will surrender my work to what Jesus did. That's when God looks at you and says you're innocent. I'll declare you innocent. I'm going to have you bow your heads and think through this. I'd like you to think through that question. If you were to stand before God right now and he says, why should I let you into my heaven? If your answer is be something like, you know, you shouldn't let me in, into your heaven because I'm a sinner. But I tell you what, I have, you, you know, I read your word and I was promised that if I stood before you and trusted in Christ while I was living, I put my faith in Christ and what he did on the cross. I surrendered my life to his lordship. And you promised that if I did that, you would declare me innocent. If that's your answer, praise God, because you're, you're saved. If you're trusting in Christ's work on the cross. But if you're sitting here today and you're saying... I I need to do more. I've tried to do this. I have tried and tried and I've done this and it's all about your works. Then surrender your works today to the Lord and rest in the salvation that Jesus Christ brings through his work. Heavenly Father, I come to you and ask that you would just move in our hearts. God, if there's someone here who does not know you, not really. They may have been church their whole life. They might have been baptized at some point in their life. But they realized, I have nev- I'm only trusting in me to get to heaven. I'm not trusting in what Christ did. God, I pray today that you would shine a light on their heart. The light of the gospel would shine brightly in there, and they would turn their life over to you and rejoice in the freedom and hope that is found there. And God, I pray for for those who are believers that we would be faithful to share this simple but powerful message of the gospel that you've declared us innocent through Jesus Christ. God, I pray that you would work in our hearts and minds now and help us respond the way you would call us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Staying Connected podcast, the preaching ministry of Pastor Roland Kennison from Rosemont Baptist Church in Montrose, Colorado. We pray the Lord will use this sermon to help you in your life and ministry. If you found this podcast helpful, would you consider contributing to our ministry? You can give online at www.rosemontbaptist.org forward slash give. If you live in western Colorado or you're visiting the area, we would love to have you visit us on Sunday morning. Our services start at 1045 a.m., but if you come a little earlier, we'll always have some coffee and snacks and good fellowship before we begin our worship service. You can also watch our worship service live through our website at rosemontbaptist.org.